Hey, thanks for joining us at Connection Point Church. You know, we would love for you to stay connected and a simple way for you to do that is to subscribe so that each week you can get notified when new content goes live. We'd also love to keep in touch with you throughout the week and the best way to do this is through our Connection Point Facebook page. Now with all that being said, let's go to this week's message from one of our guest speakers. As we continue our message series in Ephesians this morning, I will say it is incredible what Jesus did on the cross and how he is truly the only one who can break down all dividing walls that separate any groups of people. Um, Shelly and I have seen that and we'll talk about that as it relates to even people groups in the Middle East. It's contentious, but Jesus breaks down dividing walls. And that is good news this morning. So if you have your Bibles, hey, I hope you've got God's word with you today. If you are new to Connection Point, it's just a weekly reminder, man, we want you in God's word. Not just today, but every day. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you today, we've got a, a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. You're welcome to borrow that. If you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take that home as a gift from the church. We want you to have access to God's word. And uh, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to pick, uh, pick up from where we left off a couple of weeks ago. So we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and then we're going to get on into the front end of chapter 3 as well. Paul writing to the Ephesian believers in chapter 2 with an emphasis of what we're looking at of who we are as believers. That's what this whole series is about is who are you? Who are we? And God's word is the one that defines that for us. Our creator is the only one who has rights to say who we are. Amen. That's it. Not our parents, not our friends, not our teachers, nobody but Jesus. And so what you want to take a look at and a deep dive on what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be in Jesus. And so we're going to continue today in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Here's what Paul, writing the Ephesian believers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let me pause there for a second. Look, if you've got people in your life that you know are hopeless, here's a big reason why. If you don't have Jesus, what hope do we have in this world, right? So we want to emphasize at Christmas that we can have a hope-filled Christmas because God came. And so I just want to go ahead and, and, and help you from now. If you've got people that you know who have disconnected from Christ, may this Christmas season be a season they reconnect to Christ. Yes. So start inviting friends and family now. If you're going to spend time with family this weekend, man, grab them by the arm and say, you need to get back to, to, uh, to, get back to church, get back to Christ. That's a good season to do it. All right, I'm going to continue reading. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. For this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am at the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. These are the very words of God. You may be seated this morning. So in October, we kicked off our new message series in Ephesians. And since that time, we've learned some important things about who we are as followers of Jesus. Most importantly, we learned we are in Christ. That's it. We are in Christ. We find this phrase in various forms in the New Testament 216 times. So it's important. We are in Christ. As believers, the promise of Scripture is that as we abide in Jesus, he will abide in us. Could there be a better promise? We have access to the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And because of this, we have this incredible opportunity to live out our God-given identities as blessed saints who are appreciated and saved. That's what we've covered so far, that in Christ, we are blessed saints who are appreciated and saved. So it's this incredible thing that in Christ, we have all of these things that we are. And so week by week, we're just handling a couple of those. And from our passage this morning, what we find is, is we're reconciled. We are reconciled. When our family lived in Jerusalem, we lived right next to the wall that separated the West Bank from Jerusalem. It's this 20-foot razor wire laden wall. Here's, here's a video. One of the times that we were there, I had Shelly. So we were at the bottom of the hill where we'd go to the market and get groceries. This is our drive home. This is a real picturesque place, right? <laughs> Vacation home. You guys can come visit anytime. <laughs> so this is the wall. So on the other side of the wall is the West Bank. The house that we lived in, the apartment we were in, is one of these buildings. We were like 100 yards from this wall, and we could look down on the wall and see um, oftentimes... Uh, Palestinians on the other side of the wall, they would actually cross over for work in the Jerusalem side. And so they would, they would take ladders and, and get over this wall. And so our uh, neighborhood was constantly patrolled by Israeli police and they would pick these guys up. It was a real fun neighborhood to live in. I'm sure all you guys are dying to go there. But this, is, this was home for us. So, but this is, talk about a dividing wall of hostility. Like that's it, right? 
But what's interesting is, is those kinds of dividing walls are all over the world. This is just one example. But when we study the history of the land of Israel, it turns out walls have been separating people in Jerusalem for a very long time. In the days of Jesus and Paul, there were several sections or divisions within the temple area. We've talked about some of that if you've been at Connection Point for a couple of years. These divisions determined where Gentiles could go, women could go, priests could go, and where God was understood to be. So here's a picture of, uh, of the model of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. So here's the, the Temple Mount area. And so over here is what's called the court of the Gentiles. And then what we have circled here is this barrier, this partition that Gentiles were not allowed to go beyond. So they weren't allowed to enter into the actual temple area. In fact, here's a, here's a picture of a stone that was recovered that was attached to this wall. It says, no foreigner shall enter within the balustrade, so within that fenced area, of the temple, and whoever shall be caught shall be responsible for his own death that will follow in consequence of his trespassing. So, the temple, the people serving at the temple, their guest service team were not wearing welcome shirts, <laughs> right? No, their shirts said no trespassing. Very different situation. So walls have been separating the people in the land of Israel for a very long time. So as we look at these pictures, although God had designated the Jews as his people, he did, he did this in order so that they would be a blessing to all nations. So what you find as you go through the Old Testament is God had a plan for the Jewish people, but it was to bless all nations. All nations were meant to worship together. And in fact, this is why Jesus flips the money changers' tables. We talked about this. Why? Because this was in the court of the Gentiles, and he's saying, my house was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. You can't forget that part. And that was from the prophets that were saying this. We read in Genesis chapter 12, God is speaking to Abraham. And the promise he gives is, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. So although God had designated the Jewish people for a purpose, it was to be a blessing to all nations. It was never to be that they were a blessed people and everyone else was cursed. That was never the point. Every nation, race, and culture was meant to be blessed by Israel through the coming of Jesus. God's plan was that through the Jews would come one Jew, Jesus, who would reconcile all people to God and with one another. That was his plan. Jesus was Jewish while he was on earth. His disciples were Jewish, as were his first converts. The early church that met around the temple and who were filled with the Holy Spirit, as we see in Acts 2, they were all Jewish. Even those who were hearing the disciples in their own language from different nations, they were still of all Jewish background. So the early church is all Jewish. But then after a while, Gentiles, so non-Jews, they started putting their faith in Jesus and becoming Christians in large numbers. They love Jesus. Their sins are being forgiven. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so then the Gentiles because they don't have the background that the Jews had, they started asking questions. Like the believers in Corinth. You read that book, it's a little crazy. And, and I've already shared with you, I read the New Testament with a little bit of humor. So I read Corinth and they're wondering, here's questions they're asking. Can we go up to the temple with prostitution and pagan gods? Is that okay? 
Can we eat the meat sacrificed to idols and demons? Is that okay? Can we marry our mother-in-law? And the Jews get these questions here like, what? Who is asking these kinds of questions? This doesn't make any sense to us. These kinds of questions aren't coming up in synagogue. You know, like, can I get drunk and marry my mom? No! Like, every Jewish person, no, no! That's not okay. There's no Q&A happening like that in the Jewish synagogues. But these Gentile believers are trying to figure these things out because they didn't have the law. They didn't understand. They're like, there's certain things that help you live a better life. So every Jew understood. These things aren't good, but newly converted Gentiles, they had lots of questions because they're coming out of some crazy pagan backgrounds. And this still happens all over the world today. Even here in the U.S., when people come and put their faith in Jesus and they have no church background, I'll be honest, those are some of my favorite. Because they ask questions, I'm like, you know, I've never thought of that. Let's look at scripture and figure that out. Like, good questions. But this would happen for us in the Middle East as we're serving among Muslim peoples. And they're like, hey, is it okay if I still go to uh, the mosque and pray? Here was a crazy one. So in Islam, you can have more than one wife. So they're like, okay, so as a Muslim, I had, I had two wives. But now that I'm a Christian, do I need to divorce this wife and, and basically send she and her children away? Interesting things you've got to work through, right? And this is really what the New Testament is. So as, what happens is as the gospel enters into new cultures, how the gospel affects those cultures, it has to be worked out. And really, this is most of the New Testament. Paul's letters in particular, they are answers to questions that were raised by newly converted Gentiles. Gentiles were wondering, can we just be Christians who follow Jesus, or do we also have to culturally convert to Judaism? Start circumcising our men, changing our diet, and observe those new holidays. Many of the Jewish people, they were simply saying, well, just tell them to be Jewish. Tell all the guys to get circumcised and to stop eating bacon. <laughs> and all the guys are like, are you sure? <laughs> I mean, we kind of like confirmation on that. It's not like we're unwilling, but if there's an exception clause, we unanimously vote for it, you know? <laughs> like, this is what you've read in the New Testament. So these questions get raised, and Gentiles are saying... We can just be Gentile believers in Jesus and forget about all this Jewish stuff. And Jewish believers are saying, now wait a minute, it's in the book. So let me ask you, if you were there, what would you have said? Like this was the wrestlings of New Testament. Does becoming a Christ follower mean we become Jewish? Well, what Paul says is something that had never been said before. And I don't know if you caught it. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here's what he writes. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might, and here's the phrase, create in himself one new man in place of two. So the Gentiles are arguing. Jesus sets us free. We can just live like Gentiles. The Jews are arguing. Everyone needs to become Jewish. And scripture declares, wrong. We all need to be in Christ, now a new creation. That's it. Some theologians, they call this new creation uh, actually a third humanity. 
And so it's not this or that, it's something entirely new now. That's what it is. There's no longer meant to be an identity of uncircumcised Gentile or circumcised Jew. In Christ, these things are reconciled together in a new humanity. We are this new people group called Christians, little Christs, followers of the Messiah. That's what Christian is. We are Jesus people. This is similar to what happens at a wedding, that where this bride and groom have married a bunch of people from this platform, they come together, a husband and wife, and they don't really join her family or his family, but instead they become a new family. That's what happens. They might have aspects of their former family that's there, but it really is a totally new family. The two become one, and they make a new family. And this is what happens for us in Christ. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He reconciled together Jew and Gentile. That's what he did. They become one in the church. They are a part of a new family in Christ. For the Jewish believers, their primary identity is now in Christ. That's where their primary identity is. For the Gentile believers, their primary identity is now in Christ. And so people of different backgrounds, they're not meant to be arguing with one another. They're meant to be loving one another, figuring out what it means to live in this new family together that God has created. And so Paul uses this language of being brought near. Jesus at the center. Gentiles come to Jesus. Jews come to Jesus. And as they draw near to Jesus, they draw near to one another. That's the beautiful thing. Paul says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so what this means is that there's no favorites in the kingdom of God. None. God the Father loves all his kids. Black, white, factory worker, farmer, faculty professor, young, old, Asian, Hispanic, Iranian, Chinese, male, female, Democrat, Republican, wealthy, and barely making it. There's no favorites in the kingdom of God. They're all his kids, and he loves them all the same because we've been reconciled to God through Christ. Now let's think about that for a moment. The fact that Jews could be reconciled to Gentiles, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. But how much more significant that a holy God can be reconciled to sinful people? That's a really big deal. Think about the difference between us and God. Creator, created. Holy, sinner. Infinite, finite. And we've rebelled against God, which means there's hostility between us and God. This dividing wall of hostility that we've built because of our waywardness. And so then God comes as Jesus Christ, the creator, enters creation. He goes from being worshipped to being hated. He goes from a life of affluence and nobility to one of poverty and hostility. Jesus is God coming over the wall that we've built, seeking to serve and save us. That's what we come and worship on a Sunday. He's worthy of our worship. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil and the temple that separated the holy of holies, the space inside the temple where it was understood that God dwelled, where the high priest could only go one day a year, that curtain that separated God from us was split in two. That dividing wall, the dividing curtain, it came down. And now there's no barrier between us and God. None. God dwells in us. And God dwells in you. 
because in Christ, we've been reconciled to God and to others. Isn't it such a good thing that we're reconciled? Praise God. But this also means then there's no room for prejudice and bias in the kingdom of God. Because if we've been reconciled, we now need to live as reconciled people. Remember how we've talked about that? Because remember, like we said, in Christ we are saints, but then we need to live as saints. We have this responsibility to do it. So Christ empowers us, but we still have to walk it out each and every day. So think about this for a moment. Is there anyone, a person or a group, that maybe you have a prejudice or bias against? Is there anyone that you need to be reconciled to? I would encourage you, if so, make effort this week. Reconcile relationships. We were praying this morning, and I was thinking about this point, just thought, like, you know what? Jesus, this Christmas season, this holiday season, may people reconcile relationships. Tear down those dividing walls of hostility. Live reconciled, because in Christ, we are reconciled. So why shouldn't we live that way? But we also find in Christ is that we can endure affliction. We can endure affliction. Chapter three opens with Paul saying, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's a prisoner. And then in verse 13, kind of bookend this section of scripture, he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul, because of his preaching of the gospel, he was afflicted. And throughout the New Testament, and what we find in Christian history is that if we are in Christ, we can expect to suffer on some level for Christ. But what's important when it comes to affliction is understanding there are oftentimes different causes and cures for the types of affliction that we face in life. There are rarely complete answers. This is what I found. There's rarely complete answers for all the questions we might have for the affliction that we or others might face. But I have found it can be helpful to look at some of the kinds of affliction we find in scripture and and what we find in people's experience to sometimes better understand how then do we find a cure for those afflictions. And so the first is what I would call original sin affliction. When Adam and Eve sinned, all of us were implicated and we inherited a sin nature and were born into a fallen world. And so as a result, some affliction is simply the result of being born into Adam. And this will remain the case until Jesus returns. But thankfully, when Jesus returns, he will remove the presence of all evil and its effects, but suffering in this life continues until that happens. A second type of affliction is punishment affliction. Scripture is clear. A holy God judges and punishes evil. God would not be holy and just if he didn't. Now, to be clear, punishment is reserved for those who have not put their faith in Jesus because Christ took on our punishment on the cross. Praise God as believers. But in punishment affliction, God brings the work of horrendous sin to an end so that those suffering at the hands of evildoers, they're given reprieve. It reveals to unbelievers the urgent need to repent of all evil and to place God uh, at the center of their lives. And it also encourages believers that their faith in God, it's not in vain. All of this happens with punishment affliction. A third type of affliction is decision affliction. Sometimes we face hardships Because of foolish decisions. Uh, We see this throughout Proverbs. The the lazy become hungry. Fools suffer harm. The poor uh, and poor financial stewards, they're impoverished. So some of this, of the hardships we face in life is simply because of decisions we make. Another type of affliction is demonic affliction. Because Satan is alive and at work in the world, demonic affliction is very real. It can be torment, physical injury, accusation, even 
even death. Now, I do think sometimes Satan is too often blamed for for things as it relates to affliction, but that doesn't mean that he's not active in the world today trying to seek and devour those who follow Jesus. We see this in Scripture. Another type of affliction is victim affliction. Victims endure affliction by being sinned against. Um, I really, I encounter this a lot in pastoral care and counseling, unfortunately. People who are mistreated as kids or teens, abusive relationships, evil is real. And it's devastating effects that are evident in the lives of many. We also have collective affliction. Sometimes we suffer as a result of being part of a people who are suffering. We're not isolated, autonomous individuals as much as we'd like to think so. We're members of families, nations, and cultures, all of whom can suffer collectively. People born into poverty, famine, hardship, war, and the like, they experience hardship simply because of where and when they were born. Another type of affliction is is disciplinary affliction. God brings correction to, to believers' lives in order to help them become more like Jesus. Scripture is clear that discipline comes from a loving Heavenly Father who desires to save us from the harm that sin causes I always like to encourage people that way. Maybe they're, they're seeing the Lord is speaking to their life about things. It's because he wars against those things in our life that cause us harm. We should desire that. An eighth type of affliction is, is opposition affliction. Sometimes believers suffer because the ungodly oppose them. This could be verbal opposition or sometimes even physical harm, persecution. Another form of affliction is empathetic affliction. The suffering that comes when someone we love is hurting. Scripture says this is common for believers because when the people we love suffer, then we suffer. Another form of affliction is is testimonial affliction. That some suffering is a demonstration of the gospel so others have a deeper appreciation and understanding of Jesus. This kind of hardship, it tests our identity in Christ. It confirms to us we are true believers. It strengthens our fellow believers. And it evangelizes non-Christians. We see this often in the life of Paul. Next affliction is providential. Some of us suffer so that people can be saved and worship of God can increase. You know, like Joseph, he was imprisoned in Egypt so that people could ultimately be saved from physical starvation and spiritual darkness. We also have preventative affliction. Sometimes it's a warning of greater suffering that will happen if we don't heed God's warning. This kind of suffering is indicative of the very loving nature of God who may allow us to experience lesser degrees of pain, like an ache in our side, in order to warn us of a greater degree of pain, like a burst appendix, so we can respond to preventative affliction. Another form of affliction is is mysterious affliction. Sometimes it's simply not clear why we're facing hardship. Even with all of these different classifications, we can still sometimes not really know why what's happening, because we only know in part. Life is often not as clear as the categories we've outlined, but that's okay. And then the last form of affliction we'll mention today is end times affliction. Scripture speaks of increased suffering that will signal the end of this age. We don't know when the end will come and Jesus will return, but we do know Christians living in the final chapter of human history will suffer greatly for being in Christ. And sometimes I've had people ask, are we living in those times? And I ask them, have they chopped your head off yet? No. So I think we're not living those times just yet, okay? In all seriousness, so, so what we walk through these categories, what might be the cause of our suffering right now? Think about that. So maybe you're facing hardships right now. Maybe you're walking through some suffering. And maybe walking through these categories helps you to identify what those hardships are. 
Or think about people that you know, if they're experiencing affliction, and what ways could you counsel and comfort them? And here's why this matters. Because like you've got the example of Job. Was Job afflicted? Yes. But he had terrible counselors. Because they picked the wrong affliction, right? They're like, Job, you've sinned. You're facing hardship. He's like, I don't think so. So it's, it matters that we know what's going on in someone's life and the affliction they're facing and the counsel we can then provide. And as believers, I will say this. There are some principles that we can put in place that helps us face almost any affliction that we might face, whether or not we can put our finger on it. I would say this. First of all, Scripture repeatedly reveals that God is both sovereign and he is good. This is so important for us this morning. When you think about the fact that we live in a, a life where, where affliction abounds, God is sovereign and he is good. And what this means for those in Christ is that everything in life, including our suffering, it either comes from or passes through God's hands. And we know that God will use our difficulties for our good, even if it was intended for evil. We see this all through scripture. Now, this is what Paul meant when he wrote to believers in Rome. And we know that for those who love God, all things, he says, all things work together for good. Scripture does not promise that we will immediately see God work in all of our affliction, but for those in Christ, it's guaranteed that whether in this life or the life to come, the promise of God will come to pass. We know it. So we endure affliction knowing God works all things out. And here's another big one, though, that we may start with why. Why, God, is this happening to me? But we should always end with who, because that's what the psalmist does. Why, God, am I afflicted? But you know what, Lord? In you I put my trust. So we may start with why, but let's always end with who. Because the who are we in Christ? Christ is the answer. He's the who. So let's always end there. When facing affliction, we've got to move from the why to the who. That's how we follow, that's how we endure through it. So who are we in Christ this morning? We are reconciled and we can endure affliction. Our life in Christ, it doesn't prevent us from facing affliction, but it does empower us to endure affliction. It does. God may not cause our affliction, but he can use it for his glory, for others' good, and for our growth if we're in Christ. Jesus didn't suffer so that we wouldn't suffer, he suffered so that when we suffer, we can become more like him and point people to him. That's why. And one day, here's the hope of following Jesus. One day, we will see Jesus face to face. We will see him. Our faith will be sight. His nail-scarred hands will wipe away every tear. One day, all who are in Christ, they will sing his praises and live in his glory forever. One day, he will work out all things for the good of those who love him. One day, all of our questions will be answered. Our hopes will be realized and our fears will be forgotten. These are the promises of scripture. And until that day, we may be afflicted, but our identity in Christ need not be affected. This is so important this morning. Until that one day, we know that that's the promise we have in Christ. Our identity in Christ, it need not be affected because in Christ we can endure affliction. So today when I ask who you are, we can declare in Christ. Now it's getting long. I told you it would. I am a blessed saint 
who can endure affliction and who is appreciated, saved, and reconciled. So let's stand this morning. We need to end with that declaration. And it's on the screen, so you don't have to memorize it yet. (laughs) It's a lot to remember. Are you ready? Are you ready? Who are you? Praise the Lord. So many promises in Christ. In Christ, we are blessed saints who can endure affliction and who are appreciated, saved, and reconciled. Man, there are so many good things about being in Christ. So let's live in that reality this week. A watching world needs to see believers living in their God-given identities as children of God. Your friends and family, as you sit around the Thanksgiving tables this week, they need to see believers who know who they are in Christ. So as we close this morning, I want to ask, are you here today? And you realize this statement isn't true of you because you're not living in Christ. But you would say, I want this statement to be true of me. I want to be able to live in that decision and and be able to endure affliction and live as someone who's appreciated, saved, and reconciled. And so right now you can make that decision to say, I want to be in Christ. So with every head bowed this morning, the music team's going to start to play and they're going to lead us in song as we close. I just want to invite you to say, that's me. That's me. I want to live in Christ and have those things true of me. Just raise your hand before we leave today. I just want to pray with you before we go. Who here today would say, that's me? I want to live in Christ over here in the middle. Anybody else? Say, I want to live in Christ over here on the right. Anybody else today that would say, that's me? Here in the, over here on the left, anybody else that would say, that's me? I want to live in Christ today. I want to be able to endure the affliction that we see in this life. I want to live reconciled, saved, appreciated, and blessed. God, we just thank you for each and every one of those who raise their hands today to say, I want to follow you, Jesus, because of the work you did on the cross, tearing down that dividing wall of hostility between me and God, between me and others. And so God, I pray for those that raise their hands. I pray, God, that you would pour your spirit into them. Father, they experience you in song as we sing today, that they would live in you in Christ and experience the blessings that come as a part of following you, Jesus. We might be afflicted, but we don't have to be affected. Why? Because in Christ, we know that our forever is assured so we can live in that faith and hope and trust today. And so God, I pray that those that raise their hand, that they would have the boldness today to talk with someone else about that decision so that that decision is not one that's lost, but it's one that can be journeyed with others in. God, I just pray that that which the enemy would want to come in and steal, we just pray against it right now. Pray against the enemy, his works and their effects. Jesus, we just pray that you would firm our congregation's identity in you, Jesus, as blessed saints who can endure affliction, who are appreciated, saved, and reconciled. And Lord, may we sing about it today as we close. In Jesus' name, amen.